Were any of y'all on Facebook early this week? If you were, you had to notice all the back-to-school pictures, right? All the mama bears out there posting, hey, here's first day of kindergarten, here's first day of middle school, first day of high school, first day of senior year, and all this kind of stuff. And I know some of you mama bears were the ones posting those pictures, right? And, you know, some of my friends, though, they posted on there with these, like, snapshots of first day of kindergarten all these years ago, and now here's my kid first day of senior year of high school. And then there's that caption that went with it, where did the time go? And it's something we can all relate to, can't we? It doesn't matter if you have kids or not. You can relate to that. Where did the time go? Because life is so busy. Life is so hectic. We're in this rat race of life, and things seem like they're always spinning. We're captive to the demands of the moment, the demands of the calendar. And yet there's something inside of all of us that tells us we're made for more than just this spin cycle of life. There's got to be more to life than this. So this series, we get to embark on the series that we're calling Empowered, and we're going to go through the Gospel of Mark. And just so you know, Mark's Gospel, it is fast-paced. It is action-packed. Mark, he just moved from one event to the next event to the next event to the next event, and sometimes it's almost frustrating because you're like, Mark, there's so much more to that story. Like, there's all these other details that Matthew told us about and Luke told us about and John told us about, and you're just kind of racing ahead to the next one. Like, can you just flesh it out for us? But he doesn't do that. And I'm not really going to do that either, uh, for the most part, because my aim is to preach Mark to you, to study Mark together, because there's a reason why Mark includes the details that he includes, and there's a reason why Mark leaves out the details that he leaves out. And so Mark, he moves fast. He starts 12 of his 16 chapters with the word and. It's like Mark, he just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks, takes a deep breath. Oh yeah, and then this happened the next day, and then this happened, and this happened. He just goes goes on to the next thing because he's, he's just moving. His favorite word is euthios, means immediately. Mark is like like the little kid who sits in the back seat of your car and you're going on a like a road trip, a family road trip, and you're not even out of the neighborhood yet, and he's asking, "Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet?" You're like John Mark, just be quiet, okay? It's going to be eight more hours. But that's Mark. He, he seems like he's always in a hurry, always in a rush. He says immediately 42 times in his gospel. Just for a little context, Matthew, whose gospel is almost twice as long, only uses the word seven times. And Luke, whose gospel is also much larger, only uses the word twice. But for Mark, it's 42 times. And perhaps because of that, because of this fast-paced, action-packed like, way in which Mark writes, Perhaps that's why we can, it's a gospel that we can identify with. It helps us just kind of recognize who Jesus is, and it reminds us that Jesus understands our busyness, that Jesus can speak into our hecticness. He can talk to the rat race that we live in because he lived it. He, he gets it. And in all this, Mark, as he's writing, he speaks about Jesus with such power and such authority. You'll see it over and over throughout his gospel. And he also speaks that Jesus empowers his disciples and what his disciples will go and what they will do and how the followers of Jesus will bear much fruit. It says that normative, the normative thing for a follower of Jesus is to bear 30, 60, 90 times as much fruit. That's normative in the life of Christ or for a life uh, for a follower of Christ. And we read that and it's almost like, man, that's stuff of like super Christians, right? Like missionaries in Ethiopia or something. But, but not for me. I mean, you know, I'm happy. If I bear a raisin, I'm feeling pretty good. But Mark says, no. The normative thing, 30, 60, 90 times as much fruit. 
Mark's gospel, it challenges our mindset, because sometimes we have this mindset that if I just sit like religiously through a service, if I go to a Bible study class, maybe if I serve in a ministry on church campus somewhere or something, like that's pretty good Christian life right there. Like I'm checking the boxes, that's good. And Mark, he challenges all of that. And he says, no, your life is to be a life of sacrificial service for people out there, that you're sent with a mission. There's a reason that you go and you tell people about who Jesus is. You prepare the way to soften their hearts so they will rightly recognize the Messiah. In the middle of our rat race, in the middle of our busyness, Mark speaks to all of that. And he challenges us to live differently. And so my prayer through this series is that Jesus would wake us up just to the thrill and risk of following him, of living a life of sacrificial service for others, that we would be the dynamic church who Jesus empowers us to be. And you know, that's not an easy lesson to learn. John Mark, he needs to learn that lesson. If you remember John Mark, he was a missionary. He was a missionary with Barnabas and Paul. And they went off on this missionary journey. And then things get a little tough. And like at a first sign of trouble, John Mark's like, I'm out, man. He hightails it out of there. He goes back to his mom. He's like, this is just too much for me. And Paul's like, man, we can't take him again. That guy, he just bailed the first sign. No way, man. He, he left us when we were in Perga. There's no way we can take him again. I mean, Jesus had said, he who puts his hand on the plow and turns back, he's not worthy of service in my kingdom. Why? Because you're relying on yourself to do it. Because you think in your own power, in your own strength, that you can do the work that Jesus calls for you. And Mark's gospel is going to tell us, no, that's not true. You've got to be empowered by Jesus. And so Mark, he learned those lessons. And there's, those are lessons that we get to learn together, what it means to be empowered, to live the empowered Jesus life that we're called to live. I am so excited to go through this study with you. And so let's just go ahead and jump right in. Mark 1, 1 to 15. Mark writes, In the beginning or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have been baptized, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven declaring, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's an interesting beginning, isn't it? The way Mark opens up his gospel. I mean, if you were to write a gospel about Jesus, and you were just to even tell someone about Jesus, where would you begin as you began to talk about his life and ministry? 
probably with his virgin birth, right? I mean, that's kind of an interesting story. Here, here comes this teenage girl, Mary, and her fiancé, Joseph, and they hear from angels that she's going to be divinely pregnant and give birth to God's son. And then the shepherds are going to come, and they're going to worship over him. And then later, wise men will come, and they'll bring him gifts. And then a crazed Herod, he's going to go on this murderous rampage, killing little boys. So Mary and Joseph are going to have to take baby Jesus, toddler Jesus, over to Egypt. I mean, you'd think those are like pretty important details. You'd want to tell that in the story, not Mark. You'd think maybe at least he'd begin where John began in his gospel, where John traces the roots of Jesus all the way back before the foundations of the earth and said that Jesus, while being man, yes, but he's also the son of God, and he spoke this whole world into existence. You think, well, maybe he'd start there, but not Mark. Mark begins with a messenger. He begins with John the baptizer. It's an interesting place to start. You know, it's interesting that when, when Jesus chose to announce his birth, he chose shepherds. Like he didn't go and find like some really great rabbi. He didn't go into the rabbinical system and say, oh man, you'd be great. He found shepherds. I mean, the ones who, you know, they're always unclean. They're always defiled. These are guys, they can't just like say to their sheep, you guys stay here, munch on this grass. I'm going to go to like a worship service for the next five hours and you know, things will be good. No, they're constantly leaving their sheep. And so they're constantly unclean. They're constantly undefiled. And Jesus, he chooses shepherds, unclean, defiled shepherds to announce his coming. And now here's the announcement of his ministry. And how's his ministry going to be proclaimed? Surely announcement of his ministry is going to go into like Jerusalem and go into like some Jewish seminary there and find some really scholar who's wearing like these flowing robes and can read the Torah with such eloquence. Surely that will be the kind of person that Jesus looks for. No, he chose a strange man, didn't he? John the Baptist was a sort of odd character. Seems a strange choice to us. He chose John. And the thing about John, as he, as he announces, is he begins by saying, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. He's coming, and he's quoting from Malachi 3.1. He's also quoting from Isaiah 40. And Mark, he just gives Isaiah the credit, mainly because, well, Isaiah talked a lot more. And so when you reference Isaiah, it's like representative of all the prophets. And so that's why he gives Isaiah the credit. And... The interesting thing about this is uh, Mark begins this gospel this way because go back to verse one, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's answering the question, where did the gospel begin? Where did the gospel begin? And Mark says it began with a promise began with a promise made hundreds of years ago that there would be a prophet who will come and who will introduce the kingdom of the Messiah and so that's why Mark starts with John the Baptist, because he's saying, John the baptizer, he is the fulfillment of that promise. He's the one who's going to come. He's going to declare that the Messiah is coming, that the Messiah is at hand. So he points back to the promise, and he says, this is where the gospel began. It began with the promise, and now it's being fulfilled. And John the baptizer, he's the one who comes on the scene in the spirit of Elijah to soften people's hearts so they will be able to rightly recognize who Jesus is. So they won't miss him. So they'll understand, yes, he, he is the one who we've been told about. He's the one we've been waiting for. He, he tells this to people. So these people, they've lived without God, even though they thought they always knew God, 
so that they would be ready for a right relationship with God. Has anyone ever played that role in your life? Has anyone ever come and just kind of spoken the gospel to your circumstances? Just, just spoken with joy and winsomely about who Jesus is that causes you to wake up and understand, man, I, I need a real relationship with the risen Christ. I've been going through religious motions. I need a real relationship with him. And perhaps more importantly, have you ever played that role or are you playing that role in someone else's life right now? Are, are you friends with lost people? Do you have meals with them? Are you pointing them? Are you softening their hearts? Are you preparing them so they will rightly recognize Jesus? Because while our ministries don't look exactly the same as John the Baptizer, they're different in a lot of ways, this aspect is still the same. That we're to point others to Jesus. Prepare the way for Jesus. I mean, Paul would write, how are people going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless somebody tells them? And how's anybody going to tell them unless they're sent? And then there's this implication, but you've been sent. How beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news. I mean, it's this beautiful thing that God chooses to use us to point others to his son. So it's our responsibility to point others to Jesus. And John, he does this by baptizing, and he does this by preaching. And the, the baptizing that he's doing, this isn't a believer's baptism. This isn't the kind of baptism that we have today. Uh, it's different. It's a baptism of repentance. It kinda, he kind of takes it from a practice that began in about 539 BC that, uh, during the second temple period is what it began. And it was a practice called proselyte baptism. And what it was is when there's Gentiles who now want to identify themselves with uh, Jews and, and claim the God of the Jews, they're, they're basically trying to become Jews. And so there was this process they went through. And the first thing was, if you're a man, you had to be circumcised. Second thing, you had to offer a sacrifice. And the third thing was this proselyte baptism. So John, he kind of picks up on this idea. And the people are coming and he's baptizing them. But the fascinating thing about John's baptism, he's baptizing Jews. People from Jerusalem, people from Judea are coming out. I mean, can you imagine the humility of all this? Because John, in effect, is telling them, if you got to soften your heart. you got to prepare the way. You need this baptism in order to rightly recognize the Messiah. Because if you don't, you just prove that your heart is hard, that you're going to miss him. And so he's saying, hey, if you really want to be a God-fearer, like, this is what you need to do. And they're saying, what? We're, we're already? We follow God? We love God? And John says, you're in danger of missing the Messiah. Here's how you prepare. Here's how your heart is softened. And so, incredibly, the people come in droves. The masses come out to listen to John preach and to be baptized. See, John's whole thing, he's protesting the religious system. And you can imagine the religious leaders of the day, this goes against everything they're teaching. And so they're, in, they're just infuriated with John because he's, he's wrecking everything they're teaching. And so his life is a protest. His whole life is a protest because he's a little too convicting for the religious establishment. He's speaking to them. The, the religious leaders, they hear it. He's speaking to the Essenes. The Essenes, they were the, the Jews who kind of ran to the Qumran and lived off in the caves. Uh, they refused to get married, so they didn't last too long. Um, and he's speaking to the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees, they would be like the religious... Um, 
liberals of today. They're, they're one, they don't believe in any kind of supernatural thing at all. So they reject all that. And he's also speaking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees would be like the religious uh, conservative legalists of today. Like We want to add all these other rules to it. Okay, if you really want to be a Christian, you got to do this, 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 this. It doesn't say anything like that in Scripture. But anyway, here's what we're going to say. And so that's, John is speaking to all of them. And he's wrecking their system. It is a protest to the system that they have going on. But it's more than that. His, his whole lifestyle is a cultural protest. Because here he is. I mean, he looks kind of strange, right? He's wearing camel's hair clothing. He's eating locusts and wild honey. It's kind of an odd diet. Uh, this is not how people lived back then, okay? He's out in the wilderness. This was not normative. But what he's doing is he's coming in the spirit of Elijah, and he's challenging, he's protesting the priorities of the culture. He's saying, you've got it all wrong, and you are in danger of missing the Messiah. You've got you to gotta soften your heart so you rightly recognize him. And his message is a protest to their soul. In effect, he's telling them, if you do not soften your heart, if you do not prepare the way for the Lord, you will miss the Messiah. And so he lives his entire life in protest. And the masses loved him. They came to him in droves to hear his preaching and to be baptized. But understand this about John the baptizer. His aim was not to be weird. Okay? He wasn't just saying to himself, you know, I think my shtick is just going to be like the weirdest guy out there. Maybe people will come and want to listen to me talk. That's not his goal. His goal is to be obedient. And he knows, hey, this is how I'm going to protest the system. This is how I'm going to point people to Jesus. This is who I'm called to do. This is my ministry, what I'm supposed to do. And we're going to point people to Jesus. He's aiming for obedience. We've got to aim for the same thing. We've got to aim for obedience. And did you hear his message? He says, there's one who is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. You may understand in those days that everybody wore sandals and it was the servant's job when people came into the house to untie the sandals off of the people's feet and then to bathe their feet. That was a really filthy, nasty job because when it was rainy out, well, then the roads would be all muddy and nasty and your feet would get all muddy and nasty. When it was a dry, hot day, there'd just be mounds of dust everywhere and you get all that on your sweaty feet, it just kind of sticks to it. And then you come into somebody's house and the servant would, would bend down and stoop down and untie the sandals and bathe their feet. And here's John the baptizer saying, no, this one who's coming, I'm not even worthy to stoop down to untie his sandals and to bathe his filthy feet. That, that, that is too much for me. I would not be worthy of that. See, John, he's not trying to put himself on a pedestal. He's not out there saying, look at my ministry. This is so cool. Come, you got to hear it. This is not John. John didn't want anybody to put him on a pedestal. John simply wanted to point people to Jesus. There's a beautiful humility in that. And I think God loves that kind of humility. I think that's why throughout the scriptures, we see tips really on how to cultivate that type of humble living. Tips like, don't think of yourself too highly. Right? Have an accurate assessment of who you are. Speak with words and don't build yourself up, but encourage others and build others up. Don't think too much of your success. Don't make too much out of it because it's all God's success. There's all kinds of tips like this 
And John, he models all of that. And so then when the time comes for Jesus to be baptized, well, John fits the bill. He'll be the baptizer. And so God knew this ministry success is not going to go to John's head. John's not going to say, oh, man, this is going to look really good on my resume. This is This is great. No, John would continue to celebrate Jesus. He'd continue to point people to the Messiah. And so Jesus was baptized. It was not a proselyte baptism. It was not a baptism of repentance that John was practicing. It was not a believer's baptism that we practice today. Jesus' baptism was altogether unique. His baptism was a baptism of announcement. It was this moment of announcement where he's saying, this is who I am. Isaac had asked his father, Dad, I, I see the altar. Every, everything's ready for the sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide a sacrifice. And as we sang this morning, Jesus is announcing that I am the sacrifice. That's part of his baptism. I, I am the sacrifice. I am the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. It was a moment of announcement. It was also a moment of decision where he leaves his little home in Nazareth leaves the carpenter shop, leaves that work, and now it's a decision to really embrace the ministry full-time, the will that God the Father had for him. It was a decision that he would go through with disobedience, even to the point of death, to the point of the cross. It was a, it was a moment of decision. And it was also a moment of identification with the believing remnant who are coming to, to be baptized by John, looking to rightly recognize the Messiah. Jesus is saying, yes, what John's preaching is truth. I identify with you. You're my people. There's also an identification with us, those of us who would later believe and later be baptized. We say, hey, we want to be in right relationship with you, Jesus. We want to be obedient to you, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, yes, I identify with you too. You're part of my family. I call you family. He's, this, this is his baptism. It's announcement, it's decision, it's identification. And this beautiful picture happens because as Jesus is coming up out of the water, a dove descends down. The Holy Spirit takes the form of a dove. Incredible, isn't it? Because here's the Messiah. He's coming in and he's ushering in his kingdom. His kingdom. And all kings, any king before, when they usher in a kingdom, you bring out the sword, you bring out the army. I mean, there's a battle you're taking over and there. I'm establishing my kingdom. But Jesus doesn't establish his kingdom with a sword. He would establish his kingdom with a cross because of his love for people, because of him wanting to identify with us, for him wanting to be family, ultimately wanting to do the will of the Father. And then there's this beautiful moment as the dove descends and then you hear from heaven this voice, the voice of God the Father. You're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. It's the stamp of approval that God the Father puts on God the Son and says, yes, that's my boy. That's him. He's everything he says he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God. He's the one who will take away the sin of the world. He's the one you've been waiting for. He's the promised one. He's all of that. He's my son so pleased with him. And in this moment, we almost want Mark to linger here a little longer, don't we? Some of the other gospel writers do. They give us more details. It's like, Mark, we want these details. Such an amazing scene. Just a beautiful scene. Mark, can we just stay here a little bit? Mark doesn't do that. 
Immediately, immediately, Jesus is taken by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. And while he's there, there's wild animals coming around and angels are ministering to him. And then Mark just moves on again. We're like, Mark, there's a whole lot more to that story. I mean, you got to tell like, tell it, Mark, like how Jesus resisted Satan and how the, how like all the temptation. You got to tell that, Mark. Mark doesn't do that. He's speeding along. See, if you're ever tempted to wonder, can Jesus identify with your busyness? Does Jesus understand your rat race, your spin cycle, the suffocating speed at which life sometimes seems to move? Mark will tell you, oh yeah, he can. Yeah, Jesus gets all that. He had an agenda. He had a reason for being. He knew who he was. He came to give his life in service to the world. See, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is presented at this, as this suffering servant whom we're to model our lives after. And so as he gives his life for others, this is the example of how we're to live. And yes, there's an urgency to it. Yes, there's this action-packedness to it. There's this fast pace to it. And it speaks to us in a way because we get so busy, but oftentimes our busyness is simply about ourselves, making sure we got all our needs met, everything checked, and or it's about our kids. I got I to run them to this event and then that event and that event. I got to get into all their stuff. And okay, check those boxes. We're, we're good. And that's the way we're tempted to live life. Temptations come and they cause us not to think about God, not to think about his gospel, or to think wrongly about God, wrongly about his gospel, wrongly about who we are, which is an implication of the gospel. And so we move on and we move on and we focus on other things. And Mark, as he describes Jesus' baptism, he actually gives us some principles on how to face temptation. And again, just from Jesus' baptism, you can see principles on how to resist temptation. And first is we resist. And we resist by announcing who we are. Right? Jesus, in his baptism, he's announcing, I am the Lamb of God. And, and by resisting, we're announcing that we're God's. That we wouldn't be identified with Jesus Christ. We don't want to be identified with Satan. We don't want to be identified with the kingdom of darkness. We want to be identified with God. So it's, it's this decision to resist by announcing who we are. It's also, we also resist by remembering who we are. Remembering why, why we're here. This is Jesus' baptism. He's coming, and it's a moment of decision. I've come to do the will of the Father. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm on this earth. And for us, it's the same thing. We remember why God put us here. That he's prepared good works for each and every one of us to do. That he wants to empower our lives, that we yield 30, 60, 90 times as much fruit. This is normative of the follower of Jesus. And so we remember that in the face of temptation. We remember why we're here. And lastly, we rejoice. There's that beautiful scene of God the Father, God the Son, and, and the Father's voice just thundering down from heaven there on the banks of the Jordan. You're my beloved Son. I'm so happy with you. I'm so pleased with you. It's a moment of joy. The Father and the Son, they knew what was ahead. They knew the cross was coming. They knew the rejection that Jesus would face. They knew what people would say about him, what they would do to him but they could still rejoice. You know what? You, you know that life is hard sometimes. You know that life is full of pain and heartache, difficulty, has all that. But we rejoice in the face of temptation because we know, 
that the crucifixion, the cross, the pain, the heartbreak is not the end of the story. That God writes a final chapter on the lives of those who know him. And it is so sweet. It is so good. And it's so magnificent because somehow God actually reaches back into all that pain. He reaches back into all that heartache, all that hurt, and he turns it all for good. That's what he does for those of us who love him. And so how do we resist or how, how, how do we face temptation? We resist, we remember, and we rejoice in the face of temptation. And we learn this just from the baptism of Jesus. Now, John, he's moved, or John Mark, he's moving right ahead. And so between verses 13 and 14, there's about a one-year gap. But, but John Mark, he's just moving along. And in that one-year gap, John, he, he steps in and then he lets us know, uh, John Mark steps in and lets us know that uh, John the baptizer has been imprisoned. And he's lived his whole life, John has, in protest. And the religious leaders, the religious establishment, they'd finally had enough. They imprisoned him. And we, we want this section to end, don't we? That Jesus like storms the prison and like breaks John out. And then they go, they start doing ministry together and they're preaching together and more people are getting baptized. It's just awesome. Like we kind of want that to happen, don't we? Because we know Jesus. We know the miracles that he would go on to do. We, we know the prison escapes that there would later be. And we look at John, and like, there's this humble guy. He gave up a comfortable life in the city, and he went and he lived in the wilderness. And he ate weird food and dressed really odd. And he was doing all this in a protest so that people could rightly recognize who you are. I mean, geez, if anyone deserves a miracle, doesn't John kind of deserve one? I mean, at the very least, we'd like Mark to tell us that Jesus at least slowed down a little bit and just wept over John's imprisonment, that his friend was falsely imprisoned. I mean, the way that Jesus had wept for Lazarus, we'd like to at least read that. But Mark, he didn't tell us any of those things. He just tells us, Jesus came into Galilee and started preaching. Preaching the good news of the gospel. There doesn't seem to be a slowdown. He's just going. Why? Because Mark is setting us up to see that there's a cost for discipleship. There's a cost for obedience. There's a cost to serving others. Sure, salvation is God's free gift, but there is a cost to following Jesus. And Mark is setting us up to see that. For John the baptizer, the cost would be imprisonment and later death. For Jesus, the cost right here is seeing his friend in prison while he goes on to preach. And later, for Jesus, death. For you and me, there's costs. There's costs to following Jesus. And so what Mark's gospel is telling us is pay any cost. Whatever the cost to serve, whatever the cost to disciple, whatever the cost to impact others, pay the cost. Whatever it costs. You know, I'm, I'm going to end the service a little bit differently. Uh, Jeremy and Carissa, can you all... Come up. I might test our friendship here, okay? <laughs> no. Um, so I, I'm just going to ask you a few questions. Is that all right? So I've gotten to know their story a little bit. It's been exciting getting to know you all. And you're from Florida originally, right? More or less. And... 
you had a nice house in Florida before you started preparing to go to Ethiopia, right? Yes. Um, you had a, a good job? Yes. Made good money? Yes. And now that you're in Ethiopia, there are no Oreos there? No Oreos. <laughs> There's no cashews? No cashews, no Doritos. No Doritos. <laughs> no Chris, do you have a favorite snack that you can't find in Ethiopia? Well, yeah, peanut M&M's. Peanut M&M's. Okay, no peanut M&M's in Ethiopia. Um, how far is Addis, Addis, Ababa. Addis Ababa to Jacksonville? Uh, about 7,000 miles. 7,000 miles, okay. It's like an all-day plane ride? Uh, yes. At least? 24 hours or plus. 24 hour plus, okay. Travel time. Travel time. You have three kids. Yes. One in Missouri. Yes. One in Virginia. Yes. And then your middle daughter in Jacksonville. Jacksonville. Right. And she likes to ask y'all for help sometimes, right? <laughs> yes. All the time. All the time. Yes. <laughs> she needs help. <laughs> sometimes it can be difficult to help across the world. Yes. yes. That is difficult when uh, your child calls and says, Hey, I was just in a car accident. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't always have like clean water right when you want it. No. <laughs> it can come out dirty. It can come out dirty. <laughs> I'm sure if we probe deeper, there's a lot of uh, cultural amenities here in the U.S. that you just miss in Ethiopia. Yeah, when the water comes out dirty, that means the water is on. So the water is just not always on, or the electricity, things like that. Yeah, and. So there's a cost to being over there. How often do you think about the cost? Not, not, not too much. Not I guess. too much. Yeah. How excited are you to go back? We're ready. <laughs> I enjoy hanging out, but we want to be home. Yeah. When what you give up is so less than what you receive, is it really a cost? No. See, to us, sometimes you, you hear this, and how can you leave your kids? How can you, how can you leave a good job? How can you leave the comforts of America and go to like a third world country and just live over there? But when you're empowered by Jesus, and you give your life for others, There's no cost because what you receive is so much greater than what you give up. You want to know how you redeem the time? Give your life for others. You pay the cost of discipleship. You serve others. You take people to lunch. You include them in your family gatherings. You, you give your life for other people. That's how you redeem the time. That's how when you say, where did the time go? Well, you'll know where the time went. I gave my life on purpose for other people. I loved them. I was empowered by Jesus to do it. And when what you receive is so much of infinitely more value than what you give up, what cost is there really? You know, it's been um, a real joy to have you all with us and to remind me of all that and to, to challenge me in my discipleship and 
and how I live my life. And uh, so thank you. Yeah. And hey, that part, this was totally unscripted, right? Yes. We did, not, we did not do this for service. I was just like, thank you. This, this might be interesting. So, and, uh, and challenging. And thank you, because it was. Um, but one other thing that I wanted to let y'all aware, make y'all aware of is um, we heard a couple weeks ago uh, from Jeremy and Carissa just about their project Permanent Light there in the capital city of Ethiopia. I butchered every time I tried to say it, so I'm going to skip it. Uh, and you know, it's it's just hey, let's build this building so that we can make disciples, and we need we need more space. You got people coming, and, and hey, we. we we need more space. And so here, permanent light right here in the middle of this Muslim country just to make disciples of Jesus. And so one of our generous members has offered uh, $2,500 matching money. And so our aim is to give double, like you asked for 100 churches to give 2500 And our aim here at Central is to be able to like, take care of two of those, Okay. So to get 5,000. So if anything you write, like if you want to give to this, just write on the giving um, on your envelope as you give this morning. Just, hey, Ethiopia, lens, permanent light, what, anything like that, and we'll make sure that it goes towards them. But, um, you know, as we close this service this morning, I'm going to ask you all to stand, if you would. Uh, They're preparing to go back. This is their last Sunday with us. They'll be in the, the States for a couple more weeks. They're traveling around a little bit before they head back to Ethiopia. Um, one of the ways that the church in Acts, when they, when they commissioned Paul and Barnabas off to go make disciples, is they all came and laid hands on Paul and Barnabas as they commissioned them off. And so this morning, like, I want to be able to pray for Jeremy and Carissa. And I just ask, if you're comfortable, just kind of extend your hand toward them as we pray, and I wanted to mention one more thing too. So I'm a little scattered, but one more thing I want to mention is as I was talking to Jeremy and Chris, I asked them like, hey, what would be encouraging for like churches here? Like how could we encourage you as you're over there? And they told the importance of like contacting them and all these things. I'm like convicted, like, okay, I should read their newsletters like more faithfully. Um, You know, we get a lot of newsletters coming in. And, uh, And then I was talking with Jeremy later and one of the things he said that would be really encouraging, um, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here a little bit, but like to see churches actually making disciples here, right? Like when you come home to America, or for them, it's when you come visit America, uh, that, you, that you just walk into churches that are intentional about making disciples. And so really, as we're praying for them to go and be missionaries there, we're praying, I'm going to pray for us that we be missionaries here. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for uh, Jeremy and Carissa, for their friendship, uh, for their dedication to you, for their love for you. God, for their love for their family, for their love for the people of Ethiopia and the people they're ministering to over there and the disciples that they're making. So God, I pray that you continue to go before them, that you continue to give them wisdom and how best they can lead and disciple and, and just redeem the time. And God, as they go back, God, we, we just ask that it would, it would be a season of harvest. God, that they, they, would, they would see the, just the fruit of their labor and cause them just to rejoice in your goodness and who you are. God, for us here, 
God, I ask the same thing, that we too would be missionaries here where we live, work, study, and play. That we would take the calling that you give us seriously, that we would live lives and step with your spirit, empowered by your spirit, so we'd make disciples, that we'd be the church that you empower us to be. God, we recognize we need your help for that. And so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.